How can we better equip ourselves to take on the new day, our goals, and the world? How do we stoke our inspiration? By dropping in, we'll hear from credible experts on ways to thrive in this environment. As persons trying to cope, as workers learning to pivot in our careers, and as those curious about life, wellness, family, healing, and humor, we'll learn by sharing stories. Like the watering hole, dropping in is a communal place. People who've had the courage to tell their stories offer the nuggets they've gathered along the way. They bring us the spark to confront what matters. Everybody everywhere is on a hero's journey of trying to survive and do well. Stories from these diverse sources pave the way, even if the paths are new or unknown. Drop in with us to discover the roots and where we go from here. And now, here's our host, Diane Dewey. Welcome to Dropping In, everyone. It's a new day with vaccines on the horizons, a new administration taking shape in the U.S., and a different attitude towards the holidays, a need to be conscientious and caring of others over our natural inclination to come together with lots of people, bear-hugging and mingling freely. Um, Today, our guest, Rita Dragonat, created the term coming of conscience, to describe her main character, Judy Talton, in the award-winning novel, The 14th of September, published by She Writes Pressed. It's about the protest movement during the 1960s and 70s against the Vietnam War, and one young woman's stand in it. At the same time, she personally is becoming sexualized. Welcome to Dropping In, Rita. Thank you so much. I've been looking forward to talking to you and your audience. You're coming to us from Chicago, is that correct? Yes, gray Chicago. Well, here's gray Zurich, Switzerland, so (laughs) some things we have in common. (laughs) We're matching. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Congratulations on this amazing and subtle debut novel. I think you've done something difficult and nuanced with this book about finding one's way because you've really described both the personal and the political, and I I think it's an achievement. Um, You've had, before writing, uh, before your writing career, you had a successful career as a public relations executive, telling other people's stories, as you say. Um, And I wondered, because of now becoming a writer with a very strong voice and a very Uh, needed one, whether you felt you'd had a moment of coming to conscience yourself? Well, I think that um, the way that I define coming coming of conscience, by the way, is when integrity trumps consequences. So Mm -hmm. it's, you know, you're presented with a conflict and you do the right thing for the right reason regardless. And, um, and I actually think as much as I never set out to do this, my very first coming of conscience experience is very similar to what Judy has in the 14th of September. She has a, you know, dilemma. Um, she's actually in, she's in co- college during 69 and 70, which is one of the most pivotal times of the Vietnam War. But, she has come from a poor family and she has a military scholarship, which is the only way that she could afford to go to school, which is everything about her future. But it means she's enlisted. And as the story opens at that time frame in late 69, just before the lottery, um, she's starting to have doubts about the war and the, the veracity of it and therefore about her role in it. 
And yet, so she's at this pivot point. She has a military family. She has finally won the scholarship, and yet her integrity is on the line. And she puts herself through a very arduous um, journey of self-discovery simply by secretly joining the anti-war movement on campus just to see what that side thinks. Um, but she, she, her soul's in jeopardy, her future is in jeopardy, her relationship with her family. She could even be prosecuted by the Army. And she has to make a decision about what she's going to do that is every bit as fraught as that of any male draftee of the time. And that right. was my intention, but it mirrors what I went through in my whole my own life. I didn't want it to be that close, but it ended up being that way because as a writer um, instructor told me once long ago, you can't beat what you went through. It's you're an author, use it. It's your life. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's material. And I think that you do um, have a moment of coming of coming of conscience because you are willing to put it out there and you are taking a risk. You're risking it all. Maybe not to the extent of Judy, who really had every, you know, all of her eggs were in one basket, her scholarship, her family, this was all tied into the army. And as you say, she started reflecting upon the anti-war sentiments and whether this war was actually a just war. So she does this soul searching. Um, But there's a lot of um, nuances to this. There's a lot of difference between... um, singing Give Peace a Chance and joining um, the Chicago 7, for example, mm-hmm. or the Weather Underground, um, which was active at that time um, and, you know, which was, you know, espousing revolution, basically. So I, I think that I um, want to hear more about your autobiographical tie-in to this. You've acknowledged that it's autobiographical, um, tell us about the the role that the armed forces had in your personal history. Well, um, my situation was I unusually I was the um, child of two World War II veterans um, that mm-hmm. were older um, by the time they had their family, but um, two of them and the more um, the person that had the more exciting background, the one who saw the most action, was actually my mother, who was an army nurse during World War II, and she she had done done amazing things. She had um, helped perform meatball surgery on the front in tents in Patton's army. She had helped liberate Stalag 11 in Heidenheim, Germany. Um, all kinds of things, and yet when she came back, people didn't want to listen to her because she was just a nurse. They would listen to my father, who certainly also had something. And so that whole thing sort of was set up for me um, as a conflict, you know, like when you're raised in a family that's quasi-military, you know, because my mother still works civil service, you know, I mean, even the glasses we used were GI glasses and our blankets were GI blankets and those kinds of things that were all left over. You were thinking, this is exciting, but it's, you know, this is, you know, that we passed it. It's like the exciting times were World War II and then suddenly Vietnam comes and you've got this heritage behind you of pride and patriotism and all this stuff. And there is a doorway to something that I could not get on my own. We didn't have much money. My mother told me 
from such a young age that I had to go to college if I wanted to be an independent woman. I should not rely on a man or anything, just take care of myself, but I would have to send myself to college. And by the time I got to college age, I had only, you know, from babysitting and things like that, had enough tuition for one year. And then I had an opportunity through my mother for this military scholarship. So I did what we all do, which is you make the most of it. You think, okay, that's great. I knew that if I did this, the scholarship I had was very similar to um, Blatty. Mm-hmm. Reserve Officers Training Corps, where where you would um, have your your education paid for, but then you had a certain amount of payback time. So it was a seven-year stint. I had to enlist as a private first class. I would eventually be a first lieutenant. And given the time frame, because I enlisted in 68, I would have ended up in Vietnam. And that prospect a lot of people think that was that's the germ of the story, but the prospect of going to Vietnam did not scare me. Um, I thought from a medical standpoint, based upon my mother who had been on the front with all this, and she always said, if you're going to be in medicine, work in the ER, work in the surgery, don't work in OB, do something exciting. So mm-hmm. I thought, okay, that will be an exciting thing to do. And I bargained with myself that this was going to be an okay thing. And medicine does interest me. I'm fascinated about diagnosis and things like that. And I thought, okay, I would love to have been a creative person, but there was no career path for that that would pay for myself. So Mm -hmm. this is what I ended up with in a military scholarship. And freshman year on campus, it was kind of a curiosity to people that I was in it. It's like, oh, you know, a girl in a program like ROTC? Oh, okay, far out. Um, But by sophomore year, which was the time frame of the 14th of September, it's the fall of 1969. The war had been escalating like crazy, despite the fact that Nixon said he was tamping it down. And I started to, people started to look at me like I had two heads if I said that I was in the military. And Mm -hmm. it was very uncomfortable, and I stopped telling people about it, and I did get involved in the anti-war movement on campus, and it was probably not as big an integrity pull as I gave for Judy. Um, She's braver than I am. I had a little bit of rebellion against my mother and against not really wanting to be a nurse, but it was all about, um, you've always talked about identity, it was all about what we all do at that age, you know, is pull away from um, what we've been taught and try and find ourselves and what our own values are. And here I was, I felt like I was an indentured servant, you know, that I was Mm -hmm. locked into this for seven years. And I really wondered if I'm taking their money to go to school, am I complicit in this war? And at that time it was just right around the time of the lottery, they're pulling people you're sitting next to in class, you know, or you're helping guys cheat on tests so they won't have to go to Vietnam. It was a very, um, very uh, tragic, rage-filled, scary time, and it was all about the war. Very little learning happened on campus in those days. So Mm -hmm. that's kind of what happened to me, and then I had a journey where I had to make a decision. The one I gave to Judy is a highly fictionalized, amped-up version of that, but it was still, in its essence, the same thing. Who was Mm -hmm. I? If I went, if I stayed in the Army, who was I? If I left the Army, what was I? 
You know, right. where was I going to go? And I realized that that mirrored what the country was going through at the time. You know, Absolutely. we stay in Vietnam because we didn't want to lose the war because America had never lost a war. What does that say about who we are? But if we pull out, what does that say about what we did not do? Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted a very intimate story that would mirror kind of what I went through um, on this huge ca- canvas of war. Yeah, it's a big subject that you took on. And Rita, I think I love the fact that you, both you and Judy cheated on exams um, in college because <laughs> your main character does help one of her, um, you know, classmates. Because, you know, as you say, these are, it's not uh, just numbers. They were looking at the body count every week and every day um, during the Nixon era. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the Vietnam casualties, which was largely a ground war. So they were appallingly high. And yet, you know, it was the person sitting next to you who might be drawn in the lottery. So it was not an abstraction. It was something very real, very palpable. And I, I think I sense a couple of different conflicts. One is that, you know, the armed forces, you know, there is great honor in the armed forces mm-hmm. protecting us. And then there are specific conflicts that draw ire for being either more or less fair. Um, the Vietnam conflict was deemed you know, imperialistic um, by, by anti-war protesters, and there might have been some basis for that. Um, hegemony is a different kind of subject now. And as you say... Times change. So the thing that fascinated me is what you really started talking about in terms of implicit guilt, the the blankets, the things that were left over from your mother's very exciting time on the front lines were actually physically enabling you to pursue a college career. And it's really hard to turn your turn your back or turn away from that, um, you know, I, I, with your mother, that's a sort of a separate subject. But I want to just get to this idea of sort of biting the hand that feeds you. And because she did lay that guilt trip on you, your mother in the book, or not your mother, sorry, Judy's mother, who is an intensely... Yes, we have um, to be careful of that. Yeah. We'll, we'll be very careful <laughs> of that. Sorry, Judy. Judy's mother... And she's mm-hmm. she's pretty dislikable because she does want a carbon copy of herself in Judy. And there's very little leeway or wiggle room for Judy to become who she might want to be, even though it's fascinating what her mother did. Um, mm-hmm. So I can I can see the seeds of I can see the seeds of resentment, but still to have to start to split into the way Judy did when she staked out this new territory. Um, with the, uh, you know, secret um, anti-war movement on campus, she she was personally conflicted as well as politically conflicted. She, right. she had to look at everything she had and knew it came basically through the armed forces. Did it take you back to some of those guilt feelings yourself? How did that resonate with you when you were writing this? Well, I think that... Um if anyone goes through an early crisis like that, where you're kind of alienating yourself from your family, it's something that stays with you. You know, mm-hmm. as a matter of fact, when my mother and I never really reconciled over it, you know, I mean, I, I think 
actually on her deathbed, she would have loved to have said, I told you so. And because she couldn't, it still made her mad, you know, so (laughs) there were deep-seated things going on. But part of the issue of that was generational. And it was all about safety and lack of risk and um, just being normal. So the vets came back after being in the war and they wanted things to be normal, you know, like let's just, let's not take chances with things. Let's know that you're going to be here. We're going to be able to afford to feed you. You're going to go to school. You're going to have a family. You're going to do exactly what we did and it's safe. And my mother, even though she did very adventurous things within the military and she did early in her life, She was very cautious, and she wanted a roadmap for all her children, so she wouldn't have to worry about them. It's like, I'm going to do this to you until you're 18, and then it's up to you to figure it out. And she felt like my roadmap was all figured out. Her job was done. You have the scholarship. Everything's going to be fine. I don't have to worry about you. I'm on to worrying about your siblings. And I was rebelling against that. So she Mm -hmm. took that very personally, and... Then again, you know, you have these two vets who can't see. And if you remember, the term generation gap came out of that time frame. Yes. Because, the, you know, we were the first generation to feel like we could be um, entitled to our own passions versus just doing the business of life. You know, we could mm-hmm. change our lives as opposed to just adapting to the world. And that always is rife if you put on that, that they felt like what I was doing with Vietnam was trashing their own patriotism. Yeah. So my mother felt like I was trashing the career path that she had so carefully pointed me towards. And also this, um, that it was like throwing the experience of both of them in her face. And I always also yeah. felt when I came to the book very strongly about there's a heritage in movies and books and everything where you see the, the tough father telling the son it's time to go to war and then you have to go to medical school or you have to be a lawyer or something. And you see the son is like torn between allegiance to the father and what they really want to do. And I wanted mm-hmm. to explore that from a mother-daughter standpoint. So there's still all the mother-daughter feelings in there, but this mother could be tough too, you know? Oh, absolutely, Rita. Yeah, yeah. I think, think, you know, we're looking at um, throwing off what they viewed as protection coming out of the Mm -hmm. depression and needing safety, seeking safety and predictability. And as you say, generation gap, nope, we were growing our own ideas. The interesting thing, um, I think, is how it resonates even today and where we're going to go with Judy, Uh, because Rita Dragonette, author of The 14th of September, is writing future books. We're going to take a commercial break right now, but when we come back, we're going to hear more about the ramifications and the echoes today. Don't go away. We'll be right back on Dropping In. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. She Writes Press is an independent publishing company founded for women writers everywhere. Together with sister company Spark Press, serving men and women, it is both mission-driven and community-oriented. 
The aim is to serve riders who wish to maintain greater ownership and control of their projects while getting the highest quality editorial help possible, traditional distribution, and an in-house marketing and publicity team. In 2019, She Writes Press was named Indie Publisher of the Year. You can find out more on SheWritesPress.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to diane at dianedewey.com. That's diane at dianedewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Rita Dragonette, author of The 14th of September, published by She Writes Press. And it's a book that's multifaceted. At the core of it, there is conflict. And how does conflict resolve itself? That's always um, what brings us forward. And I love, Rita, that you... You know, you took what was historically or classically a father talking to a son and looked at it through the lens, the very, you know, really common, sorry to say, lens of mother to daughter expectations with which I completely resonated. I had the black armbands in my book bag going to school, hoping my mother would never look in there. I wrote anti-war editorials for the school newspaper. I'm pretty sure I got called into the principal's office a couple of times. Um, All of these things seem tremendously important during those years of of becoming formative. And this was sort of late high school for me. But, um, you know, you talked about differentiating yourself from your parents as a natural process. But then there are also these allegiances, these conflicts of, you know, First, it raises my hackles to hear someone say just a nurse because, of course, living Mm -hmm. today, I mean, come on, we're indebted Mm -hmm. um, and nurses and we've certainly now got it in perspective what nurses actually do. And in a lot of ways, your book was prescient um, to the movements that have arisen again, thank goodness, um, out of a kind of a dormant period. Um, where, you know, people didn't protest and now we're, we're back at it. Um, mm-hmm. I, really, I really do want to look at this, um, you know, manifestation of, of Judy, the character, the main character coming into her own, finding her voice through the flashpoint of the Vietnamese war, the war in Vietnam, but maybe also finding other footing, personal footing as well. Um, just... Talk to us a little bit more about, you know, finding your way, what it felt like then, how the war was kind of a crucible for that, you know, and how it all kind of relates to what's going on now. Well, I think that um, just as an umbrella over the whole thing, um, that the time that I'm writing about the 14th of September and what we're going through in the country today is being talked about a great deal. You know, people are saying, is it worse now than it was then? Was it worse then than now? I think it's really interesting that this is the, the bookend that's being compared to today because when we talk about a divided uh, country, you know, there was nothing more dividing 
been back in the Vietnam War when half of the country wanted to get out and the other half wanted to stay in. Um, and you couldn't talk across the dinner table. You, people yelled at each other, whatever. And right now, we're, we know we're living that every single solitary minute on steroids. Um, mm-hmm. So, I, you know, having been through it all, the identity is, um, it, it definitely was couched. Let me, t- let me take that sentence back a little bit more so- smoothly. Having gone through something like this so young and so violently, because I ended up making a decision that really did, it, I always call it the uh, female version of the decision to go to Canada. It really did cut me off from my family. Um, I had to start all over again. I had to, I was totally, totally, totally on my own. And it made me much more fearless moving forward in my life. Um, I, you know, I, I found that there were circumstances that I would still have the push-pull of wanting to be safe and saying, oh, I could have this job or this career for a very long time and everything will be okay and I can just cope with it or no, I have to go and move this way or that way or, you know, um, and I made decisions that made me feel like I was working without a net, but I knew what that felt. It was always uncomfortable because of what my mother had taught me, but I knew what it felt like to the point where I continued to do it. I had, for example, I had a, my own business and I sold it to a company and then realized that this, they were kind of not carrying through with what they wanted to do and I was stuck in it for five years and I left after two. You know, and I came in and gave them a way, just like Judy gave them a package at the end of, of the 14th of September that would help them deal with what's going on on campus. I worked out a package there. I did it when I was in different parts of my life. So I think it's a muscle. You know, identity is a muscle that just gets stronger and stronger and stronger, and it's very small the first time you do it. And then depending upon what you push through, it really is all about character, which is also what I think coming of conscience is about. Um, mm-hmm. And there's parallels all over the place. And I, I do feel my generation developed its character and its conscience in the six months between the first draft lottery and Kent State. And anyone mm-hmm. who went through that still remembers it, and we have that in our muscle memory. And, um, and these are the things that develop the character of an individual and the character of a country and the character of a generation. Everything is about character. Mm-hmm. Well, um, there were four students killed um, on Kent yes. State University campus um, who were anti-war protesters Sorry, when the National Guard moved in. So when you talk about flashpoints and galvanizing moments and no turning back, um, you know, we we experience um, very extreme um, ex- extreme things right now. We have armed militias, you know, who are right. threatening to uh, you know kidnap the governor of Michigan. Oh, I mean, there there, yeah. there are things you know happening still, um, right. and and I think that. I love this idea that, you know, identity is a, a muscle and that, the, that there's muscle memory um, and mm-hmm. that the harder, the, uh, the bigger the obstacle, 
if it's your parents, which is huge, and um, I, I sympathize completely because I had a total cutoff around the same time in my life. And then you sit there, as you say, without a net and say, wow, I'm in free fall. Um, mm-hmm. But it was worth it. It was worth it mm-hmm. to stake out your claim. Um, so I'm interested also, we can come back to this if you'd like, but I'm interested in that interval of where the country kind of went dormant and maybe to some extent people went dormant. I, I have this perennial question, you know, what happened to the anti-war protesters, the hippies and, you know, people who really dug in and said, hell no, we won't go. What happened to them to become the kind of lulled into a false sense of security consumers of the baby boomer? You know, we were deemed the baby boomers by the time it was the 1980s and 90s. You know, what happens? People kind of go to sleep and there has to be these flashpoints. And I think that's really what you're talking about in this book, right? These catalysts that that, that happen. And also, I do have a theory. um, And I know, um, you know, it's it's not like I'm going to write a book about it and say this is exactly what happened. But I have a, a theory about my generation and what they did and why they did it. Um, and it's, I'll just put that into the soup of other theories that may be out there too. But I spent a lot of time thinking about it as I was writing this book, because again, I've, I'm passionately interested in my generation. I think it's, it's created massive change. It had wonderful opportunities and, and it did a pretty good job with a lot of them, but there was promise that each one of us remembers that we didn't um, quite achieve. And it's hard not to think about it when you look at the world today, you know, because we're, we're on what I call the hamster wheel of history. You know, it's like there are lessons we learned then that we're not applying and look what happened. But the way that I kind of see it is that, 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 you know, like I said, the character was in that six months, you know, so that's the story of the 14th of September. But Kent State was the time at which that was the bit, that was such a horrible thing. They used to call that like the Pearl Harbor of the anti-war um, movement, that the government was actually killing kids that mm-hmm. were protesting um, legitimately against something that they had nothing out. They had no other avenue to get their voice out. We couldn't vote until we were 21. And our parents had let us down because they were, they had voted for Nixon, the administration, you know, nobody was supporting us. So you hit the streets. That's what happens. That's what protest is. And it's a tradition in the country. But Kent State was so appalling and it did, that was the turning point for lack of support for the war. But it took five more years to end the Vietnam War. And then we go and we're hitting 21 and we get to vote for the president for the first time in our lives. And everybody's all excited about McGovern. And, and then you realize what a bubble you're in. You think everyone in the whole world is voting for McGovern and you find Mm -hmm. out only one state voted for him and we end up with Nixon. So it was very demoralizing. I think when we all crawled out of college, we were just like, you know, we put all that effort into it and nothing happened. It was like marching on Washington and then coming back and finding out that Nixon was watching a football game. Um, You just felt like you had no power at all. And so the feeling was, all right, I can't. I remember vividly thinking there's no political figure I can completely 100% support. 
I can't do this movement stuff anymore. This might, this must not be me. There's got to be a different way that I can do this. And so people understandably then sort of made the world smaller instead of changing the big world that seemed too hard. It's like, let's just worry about my world. So Mm -hmm. it was like my family, my job, my career, my, you know, the world that I could actually impact and in some ways control, which is kind of interesting because now we're coming back to the lower risk kind of control thing that the vets had after World War II. So there's patterns that are going on. So the me generation was like, okay, I can't control the world. I can control me. I Mm -hmm. still, however feel that if you went through that time frame, you still, in the back, that muscle is still in you that wants to change the world and feels that you have an obligation to do that. And so here we are, and just as our careers are winding down and our children are off on their own and all these things happen, 9-11 hits. And then there's been this terrible cascade of things that have gone on since then to disrupt the world. Uh, just at a time when you wanted to go and take what was out there and make a contribution to make it better. Now it's chaos again. It was chaos in 68, say, when you come out of high school and your senior year starts with the Tet Offensive, the assassinations of Kennedy and King and the Democratic Convention. And you're out into college and the world and it's very scary. And now it's very scary again. So there's the bookends are, are feel a little bit like a bushwhack. So mm-hmm. I think that's what happened is I feel like we all went into the me thing and then just now, you know, you're, you're thinking, okay, now it's time to volunteer and now it's time to get involved in all this stuff. And what we have out here is chaos. There's certainly a great opportunity for it now, but think about mm-hmm. it. Um, I mean, the world just blows up every 30 seconds with something different that's happening, right? So where do you well, put your energy? You know, well, we where do you put, we'll, yeah. Yes. We can put it in, um, you know, suppressing the nuclear arms um, growth in Iran. That's way past us. You know, there's a there's a lot that's bigger than us, and the exactly. Um, but what we can it's overwhelming. do, it is overwhelming, and I I think that powerlessness. When you use that word, that really does describe the kind of churning, burning rage that we get when we know there's not too much we can do about that particular thing, but we can do what just happened in the presidential election, which was equally galvanizing, equally polarizing. Um, When you say people yelling across the dinner table, I mean, this was happening in neighborhoods, right? Where we used to have Mm -hmm. get-together pre- COVID get-togethers, and now you couldn't even face the person at the mailbox because, God, the heck could they be thinking these actually, know, things? Actually, that's a wonderful example that somebody should put in a novel someday. The fact that social distancing is like screaming at each other across the dinner table when it was violent, and now it's just to communicate at all. That's good. Right. That's very good. Well, well <laughs> social, social distance is an oxymoron. We know that, right? Yeah. I mean, um, so I, I just, but I'm back on this idea of, um, you know, now we do have, I think, a corollary that you drew upon, um, which I think is very apt, is the Black Lives Matter uh, movement mm-hmm. because it's grassroots, it's individuals. So drawing back again to what can one person do? What can I do? And look at how many people who were not directly involved um, with Black Lives Matter as Afri- as being an African-American took to the streets. 
um, you know, it was the sense of becoming viable in something. I could show mm-hmm. my, right. I could show my stripes. I could show what I'm about. I could, you know, reveal myself. And I think that because for a long time it was seemingly repressed, or we didn't have a sense of representation. Um, and like the Vietnam War, there's there's a governmental arm because it's the police in the Black Lives Matter movement where there's the sense that there's an authoritarian body that's abusing its power. So if you have the you know you have the um, National Guard on shooting students, and then you have you know the police shooting unarmed Black people, this is really somehow a corollary. There's some kind of an echo going on. Um, and I think that, you know, you you use the word rage. Um, I wondered if you felt that that included feelings of, of helplessness, like you do when you're in trauma. Yeah, well, I do think that um, there's the politics of protest, the um, process of protest is incredibly complex. And actually, it's a huge issue in the 14th of September, if you remember the, the, the meetings and, and the fallout from it and different intentions and things. And the thing that I wanted to say about the Black Lives Matter is that it's, I kind of go back to the hamster wheel of history because, you know, the, the time frame that I'm writing about in 6970 was also a huge time for civil rights unrest and things like that. And then we didn't pay enough attention to it. So here we are. But the first night um, I'm right downtown in Chicago. And I don't know if you heard about this in Zurich, but there were huge protests like the end of May here uh, for black lives matter. And they ended up turning violent, um, Mm -hmm. breaking huge amounts of windows and lots of, um, looting and things that sort of turned it against. And I was actually caught physically in that first protest. I was driving back and and in their efforts to control the crowd, they sort of funneled the few cars that were out there right into the middle of the crowd. And all I could think of was, well, first of all, hoping I wouldn't run over a protester's foot, but um, people were I I understood the facial expressions and the energy they were jumping up, the things they were saying, what was going on. You just knew there was this huge cloud of, and it comes from powerlessness and it comes from rage. And it also comes from the euphoria of knowing that they're going to be able to be heard this moment. And so I knew this was going to be a bad night. They also had a lot of signs that used exactly the same words we used to use. And the big word was complicit. You know, mm-hmm. if you're not here, if you're not yelling with us, you're complicit. We used to think Judy thought she was complicit by being in the army. Um, every, you know, it's like the same vocabulary, everything. And all I could think of is I wanted to get out of the car and stand up on top of it. And this, nobody would have listened to me just like they didn't listen to Judy in the vet meeting. Um, I wanted to say that here is something I have learned. The minute the first glass breaks, that is the only sound that anyone will hear. They will not hear your message. They will not be on your side. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. you have to keep it on this side of the breaking glass. You're absolutely right, Vita. I think that the only way, and it sounds very simplistic, and I can hear what the feedback's going to be to say this out loud, too, but right now, everyone, I said before, we were entitled to our passions and be able to figure out what it is. 
today people are entitled, they feel very entitled to their diverse voices and they need to be and all of that stuff. But we've learned a lot about how to protest more effectively and that's it. I mean, the violence, we'll we'll get it. Just keep thinking of that sound of breaking glass. And and there's a scene in the 14th of September like that after the Kent State protest and everything shuts down. And if there's anything that anybody, I actually wrote a story about this in the um, Earth yes. article in the mm-hmm. alumni magazine of the college that I went to, and it hasn't been published yet, but I know I'm going to get a lot of feedback. Um, but it was all about, hey, this generation could talk to that generation. We're not right. okay boomers. We're people who have been through it. And there right. are some things that can be learned, and we do not have to have the eternal hamster wheel of history. If we listen, we actually could straighten that path out and not have to keep reliving the same yes. stuff over and over again. Yes, yes, Rita. And I certainly was a first-hand um, witness to it in St. Petersburg, Florida, where I actually live, and in D.C., where there's the expression, um, you know, on the street of Black Lives Matter, right. and, um, you know, it's it's quite potent. But you're absolutely right, and it's a point well taken. Fortunately, there are other larger forces at work, like karma, and Richard Nixon went down in flames with the Watergate tape. So let's hope that there, there, these same, um, you know, empowering um, forces will also come to come to the fore. We have to take a commercial break right now, but we'll be back in a second with Rita Dragonette, and we're going to take it one step further about selling your soul being at issue. Don't go away. We'll be right back on Dropping In. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Books Forward exemplifies excellence in book marketing and promotion, representing New York Times bestsellers, national award-winning books, and books that catch fire on social media and in the digital realm. Books Forward creates ambitious campaigns with unlimited possibilities for sparking buzz while creatively cutting through the noise. Your book deserves to launch with experts who have set the bar in the industry. To learn more, visit booksforward.com or send us an email at info at booksforward.com. A JKS Communications Company. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to diane at dianedewey.com. That's diane at dianedewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Rita Dragonette, author of the novel, The 14th of September, a coming of co- coming of conscience memoir novel, the protagonist, Judy, um, it's the story of Judy, and there are autobiographical elements, although it's, um, you know, obviously dramatized to be a novel that is an award winner. It has won the, uh, let's see, 
the um, best, the National Indie Excellence Awards for New Fiction in 2019, the Beverly Hills Book Award for Women's Fiction, um, and several others. Um, and I honestly think that it is a tour de force. You can tell that the author, Rita Dragonette, is a passionate person and writer and carer of causes. Um, she has also spent nearly 30 years um, as an award-winning public relations executive. She has returned to her original path as a writer, and we are glad of it. Um, you are quite an inspiration, Rita, and we thank you for sharing your, your <laughs> insights here. One of the things that we... Um, that I wanted to touch on, especially, or that, you know, we haven't, we haven't gotten to yet is the role of being female, being um, part of an anti-war movement, as you say, even on the, you know, converse side, being part of the ROTC on college campus, something of an anomaly. Um, Women did play a part in it. And it was also a time of free love sexual freedom, experimentation with multiple partners, people um, had sex that didn't necessarily, uh, were not, was not inside of a relationship. Um, and in the book, you will find that Judy herself goes through a bit of experimentation, um, you know, trying on this shoe and that shoe. Um, and I wondered how you felt, Rita, about how those forces played into nascent feminism for yourself, for Judy, for any, any of us during that time. You have a lot of insight into this. What are your thoughts? Well, it was, it was the days of early feminism. And uh, it's very interesting because I had to teach a class on women's studies on this, and I had to take people all the way back to what was life like before birth control and how women held their sexuality quite close, say, freshman year, and then by sophomore year, suddenly it was like the worst thing you could do was not have a couple of notches on your belt. And that <laughs> happened like over one summer. Um, right. And, and it's, it's unbelievable how quickly that happened. You know, it was like, well, you know, not a ring to a notch. It kind of went to that kind of thing. And early feminism um, was very difficult in the movement. It was sort of the parallel of, remember when I said my mother was called just a nurse? Well, mm-hmm. in the movement itself, you, could be, you would be working side by side with the guys. And often the anti-war stuff was organized on campus by women. But at any moment, some guy would inevitably turn around and they did this. It was a power move. And they'd say, what do you care? You're a chick. No one's going to be shooting at you. And why, we shouldn't listen to you. Um, and then they'd say the worst thing, which is you can't possibly understand what I'm going through. Um, echoes of that, by the way, now when people are saying, if you're, if you're not diverse like I am, you know, you, you don't understand what I'm doing. And it's so marginalizing because it shuts a door and it makes you feel like you can't. Um, so the only door that was open, so you were still marginalized. This is 50 years after my mother went through it, you know, and we know these things are still going through today. I think looking back on the sexual revolution, um, I would say, and I think most people agree with that, it's like it was really better for the guys than the girls. The whole free love thing was you would, yeah, you were pressured into, if you weren't a true feminist, if you weren't, you know, if you didn't have notches on your belt, um, mm-hmm. if you 
you know, if you didn't cooperate, if you didn't do that stuff. That was that was the initial badge of female independence, and isn't that sad? But that is what it was, um, and often it didn't go any farther than that. Um, I remember seeing a um, a reimagination or a restaging of the musical Hair, um, you know, a number of years ago, and so it was like forty or fifty full, years they, after they originally did nudity. it. Yeah, full frontal nudity well, on yes, stage, and that yeah. was that was so shocking. And at that time. It was like there was a lot of free love and, and hair, but if you looked at the original production, I mean, the men were not treating the women very well. And in the reproduction, the restaging, it was suddenly all feminist. And you have to go back, there's that song, Easy to Be Hard, where a woman is, is really looking at this man she admires for what he's doing in the anti-war thing, but he's a jerk, you know? Right. And those things well, were happening all the time. So you, you know, to participate, you were often doing things that you were not comfortable with, which I think happens in a lot of political things. I don't think there's a lot of people that want to go out and loot through a broken window. But when you're in a group of people, there's that mob thing that kind of goes with it. I talk about that in the book a little bit. It certainly happened on Michigan Avenue back in May. Um, political movements are very complex. They are not pure. And the opposition will always pick on everything that isn't pure. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, it's tough being a woman. It's tough getting to the point where you're like, you know what? I don't want to do that because I just don't want to do it. It doesn't mean I'm not a feminist. Right, (laughs) It means I do not choose to do it. I had to recapture my sense of choice. I think a lot of women had to do that. First, there was no issue of choice. Then you didn't really have another choice either because you had to cooperate and then you had to get choice back. And that's the real liberation. It is. I also think that um, there are many gradations in terms of finding your identity. And when you have a void, um, in other words, a kind of um, you've been prescribed by traditional parents, you know, this is who you're going to be. This is what you're going to do. This is your background. This is where you come from. This is where you're going that there's a kind of void, um, you know, you talked about character and how powerful it is. I agree with you completely. It's a destiny, but the there's a void, there's a vacuum. So when you step into something like the free love movement, um, the, mm-hmm. the anti-war protests being organized largely by women, but then there's the char- charismatic leader. And he says, you can't possibly understand what I'm going through. I will challenge you on one point, and that is, I cannot understand um, the experience of a, of a diverse minority. I can empathize with it, and I can mm-hmm. feel solidarity with it, but I can't begin to understand it. So I, I wouldn't, you know, go so far as to say that. But I, I do feel as though, um, you know, there's a way in which women did have to go back and say, wait a minute, where do I? begin and the movement ends, you know, how much of this is me? And, you know, when you were talking about the, the um, you know, violent aspects of the, the protests now, you know, there are other elements coming in. I mean, I remember in the anti-war movement, I mean, my mother telling, telling us that like, hey, it's the communists who are coming on the mm. campuses who are rabble-rousing right. people into the, so it was the communists. Well, you know, even though that is the kind of um, rhetoric that goes on these days with conspiracy theories, there is an element because there are fomenters of movements which 
don't have anything to do with the ideology. And I think that, you know, as you say, it's up to everybody to declare their boundaries. This is where I begin. This is where I end. This is how far into it I am. And I think, you know, that is really an important aspect right now of people to, you know, reflect upon that you don't have to go whole hog. You can say this much of it is me. Um, The rest is maybe not. And as you say, choice there is where choice begins, right? This introspection of, mm-hmm. of, you know, what belongs to me and what doesn't. In the search for all of us to feel like we belong to something. Um, you know, it's really, there's so much contradiction and um, we're all looking for some freedom and some belonging, but you can't join a movement whole hog. You have to differentiate that as well and tease it out. So I think this book, 14th of September, the 14th of September, it's highly instructive in that way. Um, when I said in the beginning it was nuanced, I, that's what I mean by that. She had to really tease out all these aspects, right, Rita, that you created yeah. this character yeah. with, with subtlety. Well, I also wanted to put a woman in a situation where she had a dilemma that was similar to what any man would do at that time to sort of even out the value. And there's a, there's a book called um, The Things We Carry by Tim O'Brien, um, famous mm-hmm. Vietnam writer, and he talks about being in a rowboat in northern Minnesota on the way to Canada. And the whole time he's in this boat, he's thinking about all these issues, duty, fear, faith, family, future, career, everything. And he ultimately uses all this to make up his mind whether or not he's going to to desert. And I wanted to see what it would be like to put a woman in that boat and how does she figure on all those things, things that people didn't think that women would think about, you know, but we, we do, you know, and that's how, that's how we empathize. And so even going back to your, your earlier point about, understanding and everything. We never completely understand someone else, but sometimes that word is used as a weapon. Right. And we, right. we need to be able to maneuver through it. And I think that that's why I called this coming of conscience instead of coming of age, because mm-hmm. it has to do with understanding yourself and your character. And I would also say, like, for example, going back to some of your earlier comments, if I looked at what that experience taught me at 19 and what I've done with my life since, I think, you know, you feel a certain way about what's going to happen to Judy at the end of the book. I would say that I learned in my life that I could do anything I had to do. But at certain points, I would say, but I don't choose to do something like that again. You know, Mm -hmm. so there isn't a hurdle you could present to me that I wouldn't be able to do. But I might choose not to. Right. And And that's extremely important, Rita. Yes, you do. You do. And, you know, I think you've given us so much in the way of understanding integrity. Um, Rita Dragonette, we are at the close of our time. We are enormously appreciative of you sharing your insights with us and um, your empowerment of other women and writers in your salons in Chicago. Rita Dragonette, the website, you can find her on fa- uh, Facebook, Rita Dragonette Official, Instagram, Twitter, BookBub, and Goodreads. So choices, sacrifices, trade-offs. These are the times in our, these are the themes for our times. We thank you very, very much, Rita, for um, being with us. Thank you to our engineers, Matt Widener and Aaron Keller, to our producer, Robert Cialino. And most of all, thank you to our listeners. Remember to stay safe, look forward. Until next week, we thank you for dropping in. 
Thank you so much for dropping in. Please join Diane Dewey again next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you then. 